Hi, and welcome to the Fremantle Press and Words and Nerds podcast mashup crossover. Today, I'll be chatting to Danny V, host of the Literary Words and Nerds podcast. Since 2017, Danny has interviewed hundreds of authors, including Trent Dalton, Jackie French, Dr. Carl, Tara Moss, Elliot Perlman, James Foley, and many more. This October, Words and Nerds celebrates its third birthday. Welcome, Danny. Third birthday, when you say that, it's very exciting <laughs> to think that three years I've been doing this feels, I don't know, in some ways it feels like less, in some ways it feels like 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've done a lot in that time. Yeah, and when um, you said hundreds of authors, I had to think, wait, is that true? But it is, it is true, but it's funny. It sounds, sounds like a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. <laughs> Now, for this mashup, um, this will be appearing on the Words and Nerds podcast as well. So, Rebecca Higgy, I'll introduce her for my listeners. Um, Rebecca is a writer from Perth. She's a former academic, probably still an academic, a library officer uh, with a PhD in politics, cultural studies and satire. In 2019, she won the Fogarty Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript and her novel, The History of Mischief, is out now. And she is currently host of the Fremantle Press podcast podcast, hence this mashup. Yeah, so this podcast, we're going to be diving into all things podcasts, writers, authors, all that kind of jazz. But before we get into it, Danny, can you tell um, the Fremantle Press podcast listeners a bit about your Words and Nerds podcast? Yeah, sure. It's um, it's a conversational podcast, I hope, where instead of, I don't like to call it interviewing, I think loses that kind of personal touch. And when we're talking about the arts, you really do get into the really very human things about people. So I like to describe it as a conversational podcast. Um, I like to think that we talk about the writing process and we sometimes explore the social and political influences of the work, but sometimes we also get really silly, we get really deep. It's kind of like anything goes. And when I'm organising with a publisher or with the author about how we want the episode episode to go, I always say, let's just make it authentic. You know, if we want to have fun, let's have fun. If we want to be silly and lowbrow or highbrow or somewhere in between, let's just do that because my aim was always to have a really authentic conversation um, with authors about their work. Now, I've got, I've got a funny story. I think it might be working because so often we just get into these conversations and I skip all the, you know, the small talk, the polite small talk, and we just go straight to the deep, dark secrets. And it's funny the amount of authors who the next day they've slept on what they've said to me and they've messaged me all called me and said, can you not put X, Y, and Z? Because I revealed a little bit too much of myself. Wow. And I, I take that as a real compliment because I think, well, we must have gotten really comfortable in the half an hour or hour we had together. Of course, I always honour it, but um, I have a lot of um, author's secrets sitting on my desktop. So Ooh. I hope that doesn't give them nightmares. Well, yeah, now I'm a little bit scared now. Like, <laughs> what are you going to drag out of me? <laughs> no, it's like a superpower. <laughs> And look, I do all genres and all books. It was never just kid lit or just this or just that. I, I, I've enjoyed all books. And since having kids, I like reading them all sorts of books as well. With all different types of protagonists. I'm a big believer of I have a boy and a girl, but reading um, lead protagonists in books of female and male to both of them, I don't think that matters and exploring lots of things. And I enjoy kid lit and picture books as much as I do crime fiction and literary fiction and the classics. I I get something out of all of them. 
Um, here at the Fremantle Press podcast, we do um, all kinds of genres as well. Um, I've just recorded a, a crime uh, podcast with Dave Warner and Alexander Thorpe. And then at the same time, we also did one with um, Shirley Ma, which is Little Zhang, which is about hopping vampires. So I can relate to having to jump across genres. <laughs> it keeps it interesting. It doesn't. I think it gives you a brain break. You know, I mean, I'm a big fan of crime fiction. I just can eat it up, you know, in a night. But I like to kind of stretch my brain and think, oh, this is different. And what I really like about this is sometimes I'll pick up a book sent to me or I'll explore it because I think the author or the book is interesting. And I've picked up a lot of books that I may not have picked up at a bookshop. And that's really special when you go, wow, probably wouldn't have picked this up. And now this is one of my favourite reads. So that's really cool too. Now, I'll ask you a question because this is a bit of a weird interview. This is a to and fro. I, I don't think I've ever done this before. I've been question asker and I've once been on the other side when I was on Sandy Docker's um, YouTube channel that she does on Fridays. But uh, this to and fro is kind of really fun because if you ask me a really tricky question, I'm just going to, I can get you back. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to ask you being the host of the Fremantle Press podcast and you got this gig because you won the Fogarty Literature Award. How'd you go being thrown into podcasting? I mean, I've heard you talk about you being an introvert. Is this something that's really challenging for you? Uh, yeah, I should explain to your listeners um, how our podcast works. Um, it's The hosting job is given to the winner of um, the two big literary awards that um, are then we get contracts with Fremantle Press. So the last year it was Holden Shepherd because um, he won the Hungerford and so now winning the Fogarty um, meant I got the job. Uh, so it's kind of like a, while it's a literary podcast, it's also a training ground for authors like me to kind of get used to doing this kind of thing. It's a chance for local authors to spruik their books, talk about their books. We also explore kind of the ins and outs of the publishing industry. So getting thrown into that was a little bit scary, um, but I've had a lot of support from the marketing manager and producer of this podcast, which is Claire Miller. So every time I'd send her my questions or my queries or she'd always give me lots of support and um, a bit of a G up when I was coming in going, oh, I'm really nervous about this. So it's been, I think I've been okay being thrown in. I'm definitely not a pro yet. I'm definitely not a Danny V, but I'm getting there, I think. I want to know who is the mysterious Danny V and how did you come to do the Words and Nerds podcast? It's very funny that you call me mysterious because I think anyone on Twitter, if you follow me or Instagram, you know, you see what I have for breakfast and you see that yesterday I fell over on my rollerblades and I was having a bath because I feel like I'm whiplash completely. <laughs> I actually think I'm a complete oversharer and there's absolutely zero mystery about me. <laughs> but I'll give you a short history. Um, educator for 17 years in uh, English and so that's where my English brain comes from and a, a bookworm and book lover from way back. One of my earliest memories is um, my shopping with my mum before I even went to school, I think, because this was during the week when we do the grocery shopping. And my reward after every shop for going through, you know how boring grocery shopping is when you're a kid, right? It's boring when you're an adult, was I could choose a golden book. Now, I'm going to show my age now, but they were a dollar back then, 99 cents. And so I remember, because I used to be at the checkout, mm. so I used to remember when we were finished and we were at the checkout, I got to just browse 
was all these golden books. I would get one every time. So it was the highlight of, of my young life. And I still have them, funnily enough. I've got about 120 golden books still in my house with the date on them when I got them. So they're very special. And I read them to my kids. Some of them don't really date that well. Not all of them are timeless, but um, they're fun to read if you look at them contextually. Now, how did I come up with this podcast? I'm sorry, I go on tangents. So when I do, just tell me to get back into line. Um, I had two kids and I was working part-time and I loved being at home with my kids, but I felt my brain sort of get a bit bored as well, not with my kids, obviously, but with, you know, what else am I doing? I was working part-time and I thought I just need something else, you know, rigorous for my brain to do. And one of my mates, Chris, he um, has a podcast where he speaks to Bake Off and MasterChef contestants. And I said, oh, I'd really love to do a bookish one. And we thought about doing like a book review one. And then I said to him, who cares what I think? Like, who's going to listen to me talk about books? Like, who cares? And so I said, maybe authors would talk to me. And it was a crazy idea at the time because I'd never done it and I didn't know what it was going to look like. But I'd gotten to be um, good friends with John Larkin, um, Australian author of YA fiction, because he come to the school a lot. And he's such a good bloke. He's just so easy to click with. And I said, hey, John, got this crazy idea. Would you speak to me on the podcast? He's such a kind man. He's like, sure. <laughs> so that was the first one we recorded. And then it was just a matter of, well, I wonder if this person will speak to me and I wonder if this person will speak to me. And once, um, pretty early on, a couple of months, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to aim big here and I'm going to ask Jackie French if she'll talk to me. She's probably going to say no, but look, I'm fine with failure. I like sort of, I try and be fine with failure. And she said, yes. (laughs) I was like, oh my God. So that was like, I thought I was going to have a stroke during that interview because I was so nervous because she's obviously amazing. But then once you tell publishers and authors, Jackie French has spoken to me, like everyone's like, oh, okay, I'll speak to you too. So it's kind of like she opened quite a big door. And, um, you know, from there, you know, then you can say, oh, I spoke to this person and that person. You don't want a name drop, but you, you know, it adds a bit of credibility, I guess, to what you do if those people are willing to speak to you. So why did I do it? I needed something to do with my brain. It's a perfect hobby. I get to stay at home. I, I, you know, put the kids to bed. I make the dinner. Sometimes I'm not a very good cook. Um, You know, do all the things that I have to do. And then I just go into my study, record for a half an hour or an hour, and then go back out. You know, most of the time I record in my pyjamas. Today you'll see I'm dressed. Uh, People on the podcast won't be able to see that, but I can assure you I actually have non-pyjama clothes on, which is pretty special. Yeah. And um, yeah, just something that I wanted something to fulfill me. And I did, I wanted it to be about my love, which is books and literature. And, and here we are. I'd say don't listen, don't believe her listeners. She's definitely wearing her pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> oh, revealing secrets. Oh. Come on. <laughs> I, I really like what you said about the golden books, because that was also me. I was the kid in the trolley pointing at the golden books and my mum would also buy me the golden books. So I have a really great fondness for those books as well. Um, although I have to say, and you mentioned your fir- one of your first memories is about books. My first memory is being in a cot and either I was in a hospital, I was, I was quite sick as a kid, or it was my mother who was a nurse and a nurse came and handed me a book in the cot and I picked it up, smiled and just threw it. So my first memory is of throwing a book at a nurse. It could have been my mum. So um, that's an interesting memory, um, especially now that you love books so much. And I've got a question for you because your beautiful book and that cover of your book, History of Mischief, 
is just delightful. Now, I want to know, because you won the Fogarty Literature Award, entering that competition and then winning it, how did this change the trajectory of your life or your life as, as a person who wanted to be a writer? Well, it, it it's funny because when I entered the competition, uh, my son was a few months old. I was really, really struggling with the early days of motherhood um, and I really didn't think there was any point to me trying to enter the competition. It was very much I had to cut 20,000 words out of the manuscript to get it in. But every moment I had, I, I cut a few words off and managed to get it in. So before I even got long-listed or short-listed, I'd kind of felt like I had a victory because I just entered it. And then winning it, um, as much as my life is still very consumed with being a mum, it really has been quite transformative. I, I've gone from being a writer who wrote kind of in secret. I didn't tell many people I was writing. Um, and then all of a sudden my I've got to publish, I've got a book out, I'm talking to people like you, I'm doing podcasts, interviews, and now I'm starting to get uh, paid gigs like bookings to speak at libraries. So it really has been quite transformative and I think that's what these prizes should do. Ideally, they shouldn't be about, you know, we're going to give a big tick to whoever has the best book, but rather about giving people opportunities that maybe they didn't have. Um, so, yeah, so that's how it's changed my life. It's quite, um, it's quite surreal to think of how much has happened in the last year. It's, um, yeah, it's amazing. It, it's really interesting how your life can change in a year, and I'm glad it's been for the better because sometimes you look back in a year and think, wow, I was in such a different place. What I'm really interested in, Rebecca, is you said you didn't tell people that you were writing and that is very common. Why was that the case for you? I So first I'll, I'll also tell people it took me 12 years to write this book and, and I've always been a writer but I think I came to the conclusion in my teens that I was a bad writer and at university I wasn't someone who got good grades with writing. Uh, I was the theorist, you know, the researcher, the one who was doing the PhD in in politics and satire. So I thought I was a bad writer and I didn't really want to tell people that I was a bad writer, so I just kept writing quietly. <laughs> so yeah, that that that's why I was um I was embarrassed also. I was embarrassed that I was writing. It seemed silly. Why would you write a book when you're when you're terrible at writing? And I I think that that has to do with literature, especially being a writer, being very exposing and you're exposing yourself to people and showing that vulnerability. And I think it's one of the, the scariest things. I spoke to Christian White the other day and he described it in a very funny way. He said, it's like you're standing naked and going, this is all I got, people. I'm sorry. I wish I could be better. That was a very interesting way to describe it, but it is, it's, it's very exposing, isn't it? Showing someone you're writing for the first time. Yeah, especially when you do pour so much of yourself into it. Um, even when I've interviewed um, kids authors who have maybe written something that you'd view like that's quite silly, but there are, there are still those little nuggets of truth in there, those nuggets that come right from their soul and it still feels so exposing, like you say, to, yeah, put yourself maybe the not-so-nice parts of yourself as well into something that's on display publicly for anyone to critique and to leave nasty comments about or to leave nice ones. Even getting nice comments can be kind of, 
yeah, you don't know what to say. <laughs> Do you read your reviews? Um, I so far haven't had too many. I am not looking for them. And the dear people at Fremantle Press sometimes send me the good one. They send me the good ones. And if there are any bad ones, um, I don't know if they're hiding them from me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I'm trying not to because I think that I, I have this attitude that I don't want to seek validation and feel good about something that could also make me feel bad. Do you know what I mean? So um, I have read some of them, um, but I am trying not to. Do, do you think that's common? Have you found that with authors? Do they stay away from their reviews or do they hunt them out? I think I think the main gist is you don't worry about those one-star reviews if you get them, although um, JP Pomare, he said something really funny that when he gets a bad review, he just goes to a classic novel or a novel that everybody loved and he tracks that one-star review for that book because their old books have them and he's like, okay, I feel better now. If, you know, this book could get a one-star from someone, that's okay, I'll keep going. Hmm. A, a piece of advice I got recently was whatever you do, don't go on Goodreads. Just don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to take that person's advice. Um, it was actually Holden Shepherd who said that to me, just don't do it. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do it then. Stay away. Great advice. Uh, you and I have something in common. We both love chocolate and tea. So, Danny, what's your favourite chocolate and your favourite tea? Go. <laughs> well, I hear that you love chocolate and you love tea as well, so we could probably be best friends now. But, um, yes, chocolate for me, look, I like to say always 70% dark balls. They're my favourite. But you know what? If it's 3pm and I've had a bad day, I'll eat anything made of chocolate. <laughs> Um, also partial to a caramello koala. So look, I do have my favourites, but I'm open to any chocolate. I'll eat it if I need it. And when I say need it, you know, really like it. Oh, you've got caramello koalas. <laughs> I wish I could reach into Zoom and get one. I love that. <laughs> yeah, I, I've, I've just had this thrown at me. <laughs> well, we'll have one for I you. I love that. If we went in the studio together. Thank you so much. It's terrible. <laughs> If we were in the studio together, maybe one day we can be. We can eat caramello koalas together. Now, I've got to tell you, I always have these stories, right, but I love chamomile tea and I have one every night. I I don't know if it actually does calm my anxiety because it's not a secret that I talk about. I have anxiety all the time, but it's something, a little ritual of mine. So at the end of the night when the kids are asleep and I'm reading or watching TV or whatever it is I've decided to do, I have some lint balls and a chamomile tea. Now, one day I went downstairs. This was when you could go on holidays pre-COVID and we're at a hotel and I just wanted some, you know, alone time to read my book. I went downstairs, happened to be happy hour. Everyone was drinking beer and martinis and cocktails. I got up to the bar like the biggest nerd and asked for a chamomile tea. And the bartender looks at me like he's misheard. I said, no, no, you haven't misheard. I really do want just chamomile tea in my book and I'm going to sit in the corner by myself. And then he told me that chamomile tea is also called Cleopatra's champagne. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Interesting. I was very excited that I could go join the martini crowd with um, my, what I call now, uh, Cleopatra's champagne. So I thought that was a pretty cool fact. What about you, chocolate and tea? Tell me yours. Um, well, I do love, uh, see, I'm quite a hardcore dark chocolate fan. I love the 95% lint stuff. Ooh. Yeah. 
Um, I really do. Um, but I also do love like a nice milk chocolate with like whole hazelnuts in it. It can't be any of this hazelnut cream nonsense. It has to be the whole roasted hazelnuts. Um, mm. But I also, as for tea, I am a compulsive matcha latte drinker. I love all things matcha. I make one. You talk about ritual. I make one every morning. And if I don't get my matcha, I am quite grumpy. So, yeah, I, I love I'm all things matcha. And none, no sugar, nothing, just hardcore, super strong matcha <laughs> all the way. Nice. It's funny. When my kids, I didn't feed them sugar for ages. I know people I'm, are going to judge me for this. But I, I didn't for the first five years as far as I could. And they wanted to try chocolate. And I said, Sure. So I gave them 85% dark chocolate and for five years that's what they thought chocolate was and they thought it was disgusting. It was a great trick. I'm going to use that because I'm also one of these parents that uh, my son's one and a half and he's never seen a screen, never seen TV, and for his first birthday he had a watermelon for his cake. So I will use that trick. Thank you very much. Mm, I have pictures of my children with their first and second birthday with a watermelon with candles in it and people judge me a lot, but, hey, you do what you do, right? I did the exact same thing. We we cut the the watermelon up and we put candles in it. This is very spooky. So <laughs> it is. It is. I've met another crazy person like me. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll give you another tip. When they want ice blocks, all you do is you, you blend up the uh, watermelon and you freeze it in little ice block containers and they can have as many as they want. It's genius. Yeah. You can't, we can't live without our little rituals and our dark chocolate, although you're much more hardcore than <laughs> me. I've, I enjoy 70, but anything that I'm not really enjoying. Um, so well done to you for 95. But what books can't you live without or what books changed your life? Big question. So I really love books where you have multiple stories really woven together. So my favourites are The Shadow of the Wind by Carlos Rousseffon, People of the Book by Geraldine Brooks, The Comet Seekers by Helen Sedwick, and, and kind of books like that where you've got multiple stories over time that kind of get mashed together. And that's what I've tried to do with The History of Mischief in, in my book there are seven histories that go over 2,000 years of time from ancient Greece. Um, it goes to Egypt, China, Poland, France, Ethiopia, England and Australia. So these were the books that really showed me that it's possible to um, just weave multiple perspectives and stories and histories together. Um, but if I think about a, another book that was a big influence, funnily enough, uh, you're talking about crime before, Truman Capote's In Cold Blood was a really um, amazing book for me. It was the first um, like creative nonfiction book I ever read and it, it showed me that it was possible to tell a true story with the elements of fiction and, and that's actually something I tried to do. Um, my husband and I wrote a, a, a story about his life. He grew up in Ethiopia um, and had a really fascinating life um, he was born in a holy town called Lalibela, uh, where there are uh, uh, churches carved out of the mountains. So I kind of used, uh, having been inspired by this realisation, you could tell true stories with the elements of fiction. We wrote a story and it was published a few years ago in the journal Westerly. So, yeah, I, I love stories where you've got those multiple perspectives, but I also like 
true stories that are, read like fiction. It's really interesting, especially drawing on your husband's real life experiences. I like that. And, you know, with me, you you said it so eloquently, you know, like the multiple perspectives and the threads. And I just like books that make me feel a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like if I'm sitting there crying and weeping or if I'm thinking this is amazing, I like the books that give me all the feels. You know, when I was a kid and I was I was that kid that was writing books when they were, you know, I think I wrote my first book when I was nine. I was I was that kid. And I remember there was one book I wrote and the whole goal from the first page was to give it to my friends and make them cry at the end of it. So I wrote 404 pages of this ridiculous book and at the end I'm like, main character, bam, you're dead. So my whole goal was to make someone feel it, it's, you know, it's it's funny that you say that. I also like the feels, but um, did any of your friends cry because you murdered your protagonist? Well, one of them told me they were really upset about it. Um, I don't think they were super happy. Um, some of them told me that they cried, and I remember being like, "Yes, I did it. Yeah, I was terrible." That's great. The last book that made me cry was um, it's not out till September. Was Sorrow and Bliss by Meg Mason. I remember thinking, "Oh, I'll start this book tonight." It was about six o'clock. And I didn't go to bed till about one o'clock because I stayed up all night reading it and crying from page 250. And I love that book so much now. It's so beautiful. The last book that made me cry was a poetry collection by Bron Bateman. Um, yeah, I it, it has a lot of stuff about motherhood in there, um, about trauma and I don't know, like half of the poems in that book would make me tear up and I'd have to put it down for a little while. And But then I'd come back because it was so beautiful, but also, yeah, the power of words, hey? <laughs> becoming, since becoming a mother, do you read things differently or do you react differently to literature now that you are a mother? I, I think definitely. I definitely find things about motherhood or children um, I have a much stronger reaction to. Um, I also find my reading habits have changed as well since becoming a mother. So the only time I ever have to do anything is when my son sleeps. So if I want to read, that's the time. When he naps is when I get the time to read. So at the moment I've been prioritising books. Um, I'm researching another book. And so I think when you become a parent, it's, means that you, yeah, you, you really have to prioritise what you're reading. Have you found that as well? My kids are a little bit older now. Um, when I remember when my son was born, he never slept. He's like a vampire. And so I didn't read for a whole year and I felt like my soul was dead. So I got a Kindle. So at least when he wasn't sleeping next to me, I could read, but I still prefer the actual book. But now um, we have quite a strict bedtime because they're, you know, much happier when they have a, a good sleep. But as well, I think it's really important for parents to recharge. You know, you, you work in the day and then they, they come home from school and it's all on the go and homework and dinner and all that kind of stuff. So that, I mean, and some parents choose, you know, to send them to bed a little bit later and have the sleep in, whereas for me the night's really important. They'll come and, you know, whack me on the head at 5.30 a.m., but that's fine because they've been asleep since 7.30. So I'll take the, the um, you know, the morning cuddles at 5.30 a.m. because, you know, we do put them to bed at around 7.30. So, and I, I try and stay up as late as I possibly can. It's very bad for me, but I do it anyway. And so you have that 7.30 window till whenever it is you want to go to bed. So, yeah, but it's, it's easy when they're a bit older. I think um, you're still in that stage <laughs> where they're not sleeping. 
sleeping as well as they could be or will in the future. Absolutely. And I have tried to get a bit sneaky by uh, reading if if my son manages to get excited maybe about a book of his own or some Duplo. Um, but this, it's funny, the second he sees me with a book, he's like, nah, I want to breastfeed. No, I want to play. I want to climb something. Um, so, yeah, I do have to wait for that nap time. And, yeah, I think my son's quite similar. Uh, he's a bit of a vampire waking up throughout the night all the time. But, um, you know, audiobooks are great too. I do prefer the real thing, but I think audiobooks are great for that too. Now, Danny, I want to talk, get back to our podcasts. So what does the behind the scenes look like for Words and Nerds? I'm really curious how you get authors to interview, how you record, and who's kind of pulling the strings behind the mic. That is such a funny question. Rebecca, because um, I like to say that I have a staff, Benny, who do all the things for me. They curate the book and do my editing, but it's just me. Um, so, <laughs> um, and that's for a few reasons because, um, one, I'm probably a control freak, but second of all, I don't think I've met anyone yet that has the same kind of passion for this that I do because I interview, sometimes I'll do two, three, if I'm pushing it, interviews a week and then I'll have to edit them up and I stay up late doing it. And I don't want to impose that kind of schedule on anyone. So, you know, when you do it on your own, it's like, well, I can do whatever I want. When my family's in bed asleep, I can do my editing or whatever I want to do. But you know, I've always been really good at squishing lots of things into time. I think if any, if I have a superpower, time management is probably one of them. So if I've got to go somewhere in 15 minutes, I won't just sort of, you know, wait for that 15 minutes to pass. I'll read three chapters of a book. I'll mop the floor. I'll do something to squeeze something into that time. I don't know if that's good for you, but that's what I do. Um, so basically I used to just go directly to the author's now um, a lot of I work with a lot of publishers like your good selves and we talk about books and then we talk about what books are coming up and what's exciting and um, I, I don't do a lot of chasing anymore which is nice the books that have just come to my door and then I, I go through them and decide which ones I'd like to talk about I'd like to talk about them all but I'm only one person and I can't unfortunately so I do what excites me I do um, you know what I think is interesting and um, I like debut authors because I think that's interesting. But I also like really, I really like having repeat guests on as well because if you've created that rapport within half an hour or an hour, which you do, then you speak to them again and again and again. And, you know, it's this wonderful, remember last time and this book and what's happened since last time. And so you do really feel like you become really fast friends. I mean, never sit next to me at a wedding because I just skip the small talk and go straight to what are your darkest secrets, please? I don't care what you do for a job because that's boring. So <laughs> basically it's just me, but I have um, gotten in some co-hosts. I like the balance of getting in co-hosts. And that means that it's no real commitment to them. They can go, yeah, I'm free this day or I like this author. So um, Jack Heath, um, he has come on a number of times. He's interviewed me for the 100th episode, so that was fun. We didn't actually connect over books. We connected over our love of the TV series 24 with Jack Bauer. <laughs> Kiefer Sutherland being the actor, we actually think Jack Bauer's a real person. Um, so we connected over our love of 24 and so... We talked about his book for probably 30 minutes and then talked about Jack Bauer for probably the next hour. So that was fun. And then I've had Tim Harris, um, children's author, and Nicole Hayes and Felice Arena jump on as guest hosts for an episode for now. 
And um, I've had, if you listen to the podcast, I've had Adrian Beck on now, who is pretty much like the words nerds um, furniture. And he has jumped on a number of times with the Kidlit episodes. And sometimes you just click with people. And it's funny that, you know, we've become quite good mates because he just makes me think a little bit differently. He always takes me out of comfort zone and he's just hilarious. And anyone that can make you laugh that much you know, is welcome because I think sometimes I get a bit deep and a bit serious and that's okay because I like the diversity of the podcast or the variety rather of the podcasts, the episodes. So, you know, that adds just a little extra dimension to that. So that's been really fun. And then um, I started, well, I've only done one, but I've got more in the pipeline of what I've called feedback sessions. And this started with a Twitter conversation with Ben Hobson, um, author, and he was talking about his drafts and he was just smashing out the words every day, like he'd done 5,000 words, 5,000 words. And I just said, you're amazing. This is totally inspirational. And then one late night I said, you know what would be amazing is if you shared this draft on the podcast and then showed me what another draft was and another draft was. I actually thought he'd tell me that that stop being ridiculous. He's never going to show me his draft because, as you said, it's quite exposing. And he was like, that's a great idea. So we did this fabulous um, feedback session where he showed me three drafts, which I just think, you know, hats off to him, that zero draft, then another draft after he'd spoken to his agent and some beta readers, and then a third draft. And it'll be so interesting. And I know this will get published because, you know, he's a fantastic writer. It'll be so wonderful to see what it turns into after reading that zero draft. So I'm super excited about that. And we've got one coming up with Michael Pryor and Maya Linnell and Mark Smith. So all these brave authors who um, are coming up and joining me with their zero drafts. So I'm really looking forward to that. Did you find there was quite a big difference between the zero draft and the most polished one, the, the most recent one? Yeah, there was a huge difference. Um, not only the writing changed because I think he he's really good at just smashing out those words and he knows they're not the perfect words that are going to go into the book. He just wanted to get to that word count and that's, you know, a writing process that he works through. But they were very different and you could just tell there was, he'd taken on the feedback, which I also think is, is you know, hats off to him as well, but it really evolved from he loves writing action scenes and obviously you have to balance action with character or no one cares about the action and so he wrote, you know, what he loved in the beginning with those action scenes. But then by the third draft, I was really liking the wife in the in the story and I really was liking his relationship with his daughter. And so it was very different. And so I can't wait to see what the finished um, product is in the end. I think it's just going to be wonderful to see that evolution. And we were worried that it would take the magic away from books, you know, because you see a book and it's perfect and it's beautiful and it makes you cry but um, I just think it makes it even even cooler, you know, to think that all this mess has turned into something perfect and beautiful. Like, I love that. It gives us hope for everything, right? It gives us hope for the world. Yeah, I, that's very much my attitude with writing too. I always think of it like, and this is going to sound really graphic, but like you're vomiting, you're just vomiting out clay and then you have to sculpt it into something. So the first, the very, very first draft of my book, which no, not a soul on earth has seen except myself, was 180,000 words. So it was just garbage. And I then had to, I then spent probably six months editing it two or three times to get it down to then 140. 
And that's the, the version I gave to my friends. And then I edited it again after their feedback and again and again and again. And I think it's it would be funny to look at my draft zero versus the book that's now on the shelves. I think it would be, and I, I hope it would be drastically different. Did you just volunteer to come on to the Words and Nerds <laughs> podcast and do a feedback session? Is that what I'm hearing? Ooh. Oh, I don't know. Do you do you want to see the hundred and eighty thousand word mammoth that I would describe as clay vomit? Probably not going to read the hundred and eighty thousand words, but I have asked the authors participating to give me three chapters, okay. <laughs> three three drafts of a chapter each, because yeah, I already struggle to read the books that I have to read at the moment. Hey, well, yeah, maybe see how your um your list is going but maybe maybe I can I can draw out a few horrendous chapter drafts for you anytime anytime you're ready I will be here in my study with all my people my people in the background pulling all those strings (laughs) to bring the feedback session with Rebecca Higgy now um how do you prepare before an interview and you're talking about you got nervous you get nervous and I still do as well um how do you overcome those nerves and what do you do to prepare for the interview so you don't feel so nervous? I um, kind of, you were talking about being a control freak. I am, that is also me. Uh, I have to um, kind of overdo everything. So I, I read the books uh, very closely. As I'm reading, I take notes. I I always read them weeks, if not months in advance. So often the books have not actually even been printed and I've been given a paper copy because uh, the people at Fremantle Press know I like to be organised. So, yeah, I read them really closely. I draft my questions. Then I speak to our um, producer and the marketing manager, Claire, and we work on it together to make sure it's um, fully polished. And then I um, send it to the author, try and tell them, you know, this is conversation, we can be really relaxed. Um, If you don't like any questions, I can cut them. And then because, again, I have to be super, super prepared, I actually walk around my house when my son's napping and read the questions to myself out loud and pretend that I'm interviewing the person. And sometimes I'll even add a, oh, that's really interesting. And anyway, and (laughs) so that's how I deal with it. I kind of over-prepare and... um, yeah, and that is that is because I do feel still, I've been doing this for a year and I feel so new to it. Um, when I listen to your podcast, you do seem so relaxed and confident. So how do, how do you know when an interview is going well, Danny? That's an excellent question. And I think, oh, thank you, by the way, also for that. Um, I do edit, so it's a secret of editing. So any awkward parts or any time I repeat myself, Um, I just cut it out to make us all sound really good. So hopefully that's what you're doing too. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so like I said before, I skip all the small talk and I just go straight to, you know, the the guts of what, you know, we want to talk about and about humanity. And thankfully authors love talking about their writing. I don't think enough people ask them about their writing and they love talking about their books because, as you said, you put your heart and your soul into these books and, when someone's asking you really good questions about them, you're thinking, oh, great, you know. And I've, I've gotten so many times from, you know, authors who have been around for a really long time as wonderful writers like Elliot Perlman say to me, I've never had such good questions. And I think it might be my English brain or I just love Elliot Perlman's work as well. But it's interesting that, you know, maybe people 
I don't know. I think they connect with you because they know that you've connected with their work. And I think people, they they are more willing to give you more because they think, oh, and they know that you've really read the book closely as you do. You've really respected the work and you've really um, thought about the questions. You haven't just read the blurb at the back and asked three questions about, you know, what you've read on the back. So I think it comes with that kind of mutual respect. And like I said before, you click with some people better than you do with others and that's okay because that's what happens in life you know you can't be best friends with everybody but I think as the interviewer it's my responsibility to make them feel comfortable or to draw the best out of them so I often have like you um, get over prepared I think preparedness is you know your best uh, fight against being nervous but sometimes if I don't know the author very well or if I'm particularly nervous I'll have more questions they'll ever need because if they're not working or they're not going in the right direction or they give me really short answers because they may not be wanting, I don't know, or they're just a reserved kind of person. So I just have those extra um, questions up my sleeve. But in saying that, the favourite interviews I have is when you don't even look at your questions and you just have this amazing authentic conversation with one another, which doesn't always happen, but when it does, you know you've had a really special chat and, you know, sometimes you just connect with people. But we have to connect really quickly. I mean, we do it over Skype. This is over Zoom. You're not in the same room as each other. So, you know, you have to just build up that rapport really quickly and I've just found it with that mutual love of books and if you respect the work and you read it closely I think you get more back. Yeah I I think respecting the work and those detailed questions as an author as well the biggest compliment you can give a writer is to ask them a really engaged profound question like it's when if someone says to me oh I really loved your book blah 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 I'm just going to go like oh okay thank you I'm really shy and I I I don't want to hear a compliment (laughs) um what I love is when someone asks me a really deep question and shows that they engage with the book and I've, I've had a few of them lately where I had a question recently where someone talked about what they got out of the book and how they felt that it was like a really profound comment on human behaviour and how we do certain things um, when we're faced with loss. And then they ask, how do you see your book? And I'm just like, can I just take what you said? Because it was so beautiful. So it, it really does make a big difference when you're, it, it, it definitely as a writer, yeah, makes you feel good that someone actually has engaged with your book. And I imagine that makes, you know, that's what makes a good interview when, the two people talking about the book love the book. You know, if, if you love the book as much as the author, then that's going to be an awesome interview. And I think, I don't know if this is a strength or a flaw of mine, but I'm just overly enthusiastic about books particularly. And so I feel like I hope people know that I'm being authentic because I'm like, I love this book and, oh, wait, I loved this book and this is my favourite book. And it's all true because I just, I find something inside of all the books that, you know, I do 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 interviews with authors and books that I like, you know, I don't think it's um, good for anyone because I get to choose who I interview because I guess that's, you know, just me being me here. Um, And so I I do what I like and what I'm interested in, but then it gives that authenticity of like, I really loved this. And so I am overly enthusiastic about books, but, you know, that's not a bad thing, right? No, that's an awesome thing, especially as a writer. Yes, the more enthusiasm, the better. You know, talking about enthusiasm, um, I have to say I, I found that COVID's been really challenging um, because we 
when we had when COVID happened, we still recorded, but we did it via phone. So I couldn't actually see the person's face. Have you always recorded with Zoom? Like, has that being able to see someone's face been a big factor to making it more yeah. authentic? Not or no, not always. Um, sometimes it depends on the Wi-Fi too, because when you look at each other, it sucks up Wi-Fi. And so we try to do the face-to-face thing, but sometimes, you know, who knows? I've tried to crack the code, but it's impossible. Sometimes the Wi-Fi is no good and you just have to turn those voices off. Um, lucky, luckily, I'm an 80s child and I've spent a lot of my time on the actual phones, you know, in my bedroom talking to my friends until my parents yelled at me. So I think I don't. it doesn't bother me once you start getting into those deep questions. It's much better in person. Then the next step is, you know, the one before that is seeing each other on Zoom or Skype. But, you know, I'm a child of 80s. I'm, I'm fine. I had a little phone with a, that looked like a piano because my dad was a musician and I spent a lot of my childhood talking to my friends about who knows what because I saw them at school all day. But, you know, there was no texting. I didn't have any video games. I just had my golden books. I was an only child. So it was just me and my golden books and my phone and my friends. <laughs> yeah, I'm also an, an, a 90s child. So I remember those phones that were often in the kitchen. So you could never really have the talks that you really wanted to have about whatever it might be because you were always being watched. So the, the thing I, I really want to know, Danny, is... Like, what are some of the most profound things that you've learnt from interviewing authors? Mm, I was really hoping you'd ask me this question. (laughs) And um, I saw this as well as my own hobby as a bit of a a university for me, my own little university. And what's better than to listen to all the authors that you've talked about, about their writing process and how they get from A to Z. And, uh, you know, what what I like and what I dislike equally is that there is no right way to write a book. You know, everyone does it differently. Some people are plotters, some people are pantsers somewhere, Some people are somewhere in between. Some people do the research before. Some people do it after. But I I think it really comes with that need to tell a story. And what I love, what Trent Dalton said to me, and I'll never forget what he said when he wrote Boy Swallows Universe, and that's just such an incredible book, that he said, what's the point of writing if you don't write with heart and soul? So you can have all the technical stuff in the world and you can do all the university courses in the world. But if you don't put your heart and soul into the book, there's going to be something absent from that book. And and he said to me, which I found very dark but very beautiful, that before he sat down in his study to write Boy Swallows Universe every night, he would think, what would my life be like if I didn't meet my wife and I didn't have my children? And he said all of a sudden, you know, something kind of broke in him and he was able to pour all that into his book. And when you read that book, you, you, you can see, you can feel his heart and soul on that page. And so that was probably the most profound thing. And it surprised me because it was nothing about technicality of writing. You know, I've always read, you know, how to be a good writer and talked about process. And that just threw everything out of the water with his process. And I just thought that was beautiful. Um, Jack Heath, I really like that his books start usually with one image. And so he had this one sort of photograph in his head before he wrote um, Hangman. And that then, you know, formed the rest of his book. I thought that was really cool. I I love the way Jackie French and Kate Forsyth, they do just incredible amounts of research. And sometimes Jackie French works on a book for 10 years. And, 
you know, all you can tell when you read her historical fiction that it's just so wonderful and so beautiful. And then I think we touched on it a little bit before, all the kidlit authors I've spoken to, you know, we think of kidlit books, well, sometimes we can, it's just a picture book or it's just a kidlit book, but it's not, you know, it's the joy, it encompasses the fun and the magic of childhood. And it really does, all the issues they talk about, about being yourself or um, not worrying about the kids who are mean to you or being unique, all those things help you growing up. And growing up's really hard, being an adult's hard, but growing up is really hard. You know, you're figuring out who you are, who your friends are, what your boundaries are. And these books, they're there for you to help guide you. And I still see that as an adult, that that there are books that help you through your life. What about you, Beck? Um, you know, I think there was an interview I did. I mentioned Bron Bateman's um, book of poetry before. And when I left that interview, I remember walking away thinking, I'm going to be okay. Because like, I saw this woman that is much older than me, um, has been through these um, remarkable experiences, some experiences, some of them wonderful, some of them deeply traumatic. And she was just so light and the way that she wrote was so beautiful. And so, yeah, I felt it is going to be okay. And that was oddly, I know it sounds quite simple, but it is quite a profound thing to think that as we grow, it will be okay, things will be okay. So for me, that was probably one of the most profound things that I learned from speaking to an author that uh, whatever... Um, traumas we might have in our life, whatever we're going through. And like you say, this can be the same for kids lit. Whatever we're going through, it will be okay at the end of it. So, yeah, that's that's it for me. <laughs> and it's never been so relevant now when, um, you know, with COVID, um, it's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be okay. Thank you. I've just loved your questions and I've loved coming on um, to this podcast. I feel very honoured to be part of the um, Fremantle Press podcast tonight and it's such been such a joy to speak to you about books and literature. I could do it all night. I'm sorry. I know people have more important things to do, but I could just sit here till midnight and talk to, with, you know, talk about you, talk with you about books. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you too. It's been a real thrill to be on um, the Prose podcast. That's what I'm going to call it now. <laughs> Um, and yeah, I too would love to have sit down with a cup of tea and some chocolate and talk about books, but I think we'll probably end it there. Um, so I will thank everyone for listening to us. I will say, um, Danny, thank you for being, um, for joining us for this super mashup podcast and for anyone who's listening, subscribe to the Words and Nerd podcast, subscribe to the, uh, Fremantle Press podcast and, um, yeah. Get reading. <laughs> <laughs>